What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection. This is episode 41 of the show. I am Carlos Colazzo, as always, joined by Ben Badler today on March 2nd. We're recording this on a Thursday. Uh, and Ben, is it still snowing up where you're at? Uh, have you been able to even think about going to see baseball? Or are you still uh, hiding in the house trying to stay warm somewhere? I am I am planning trips to the Dominican Republic. I'm planning trips to much warmer weather places than where I am right now. So fantastic, I am, fantastic. I'm still jealous of everybody down in uh, spring training right now. Well, don't get too excited because Kyle in the Slack sent some snow in Southern California. And I didn't realize... Uh, that was possible in in March in San Diego or, or outside of San Diego for him. So maybe you'll find some snow in Dominican Republic in in addition to some players. That would be that would be that would be unexpected. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've got another good show lined up for you guys today. Uh, it's the forty first episode of the podcast. Some spring training stuff going on. Uh, People who have not watched minor league baseball games were finally exposed to the pitch clock, so that was fun to see. College baseball is still rolling. Our farm system rankings were published after we tweaked them with a few of the international free agent moves, a few trades that weren't uh, put in the prospect handbook. Uh, There's a ton of draft content on the site, so things are busy. Things are rolling. It feels like everyone is kind of going 100% at this point, the World Baseball Classic is coming up. Uh, we're just full speed ahead at this point, Ben. Um, what are you paying attention to in baseball? What are you focused on right now? And I guess of all those things that I just threw out there, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, a little bit of everything right now. It's this fun time of the year where it's still we're still putting out off-season content, off-season rankings, but now the season is here for college baseball high school baseball is getting started up obviously spring training um yeah and like you said we put out our 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 farm system rankings too so i know everybody thought their team was too low but um yeah so it's a kind of a good mix of off-season content still but now it feels like yeah we're getting we're getting baseball back yeah, the the one thing that I wanted to touch on at first since we mentioned it last episode, I believe, is just the pitch clock in, in spring training. I feel like it was a bit jarring to a lot of people. At the same time, we're getting a lot of confirmation about the fact that games have been significantly quicker. A lot of people showing that it's the, the pace of games is hasn't been this fast since basically the 1980s for spring training games, which is kind of cool jj is recently talking about the the stolen bases that it's uh encouraged in spring training but we talked about it we saw it at college you've seen it in the minors do you have any different takeaways after seeing how it's been implemented in spring training and i guess what would you say to people who are struggling to adjust to it i think from my perspective 15 seconds feels a bit rushed i'm curious the exact time for the minor league players was 17 I believe with no no one on is that right 17 or 18 seconds i think it it just allows us kind of like what you alluded to just a few moments ago it kind of gets back to old school baseball just in terms of the the pace and the flow of the game the way that it was before it, it kind of slowly like the frog was boiling in the pot and we don't even notice just how much more time in between pitches it was taking 
over over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years and how much that has changed and not for the better. So I think that is a positive thing. And I think, look, you're going to see in the first, especially the first week or two of spring training, you're going to see players are going to take some time to have to adjust to the new rules and and not just the players, but also the broadcast too, like where you see the clock on the screen or on the, like on your television screen, either in the backgrounds or on the score bug. I think the broadcasts are going to figure out, Oh no, the fans don't want to see a little clock ticking down on every single pitch. That's super annoying. Let's yeah. The TV aspect of that is fascinating because I had mostly just thought about how when you're actually at a game and there are clocks on like the back fence at the field or like right behind the plate, it, it fades away for you naturally because you, you don't have to look there. You're kind of in control mm-hmm. of whatever you're watching. But I, I hadn't really given much thought to how that was going to be presented on the broadcast. What's your ideal like setup for that? Just don't show it at yeah. all. I don't think there's any added value mm-hmm. to showing it uh maybe there can be like you know when they show like eight different uh simulcasts of a game if you're like a diehard fan of, of wanting to see the clock tick down maybe they can have a separate broadcast just for those 19 <laughs> people who want to see it yeah but for the most part i, I think once the regular season gets going you're not really going to see too many pitch clock violations because players will have time to adapt to the rules and it'll just become more more commonplace for them. You might see some violations here and there, mm-hmm. but I think it's just a little bit more jarring right now at the beginning of the season. And once the players and the umpires and again, the, the broadcasters get more accustomed to it, you're not going to really notice it quite so much. There was one scenario that came up that was, I think, the first example of the pitch clock, and it happened late in a Braves-Red Sox game. The bases were loaded. It was a tie game. And Cal Conley, who should be used to the pitch clock because he's been in the minor leagues the last few years, mm-hmm. was called out on strikes, um, not because he wasn't in the box. Both of his feet were in the box, but you have to have your attention on the pitcher by by the... I believe the eight second mark in the pitch clock and the umpire ruled that he didn't have his attention on the pitcher. And so he gave him a strike. It was strike three. The game was over. Conley at one point even started running down the first baseline when the ump called time because he assumed it was being called on the pitcher for not being ready in time. What are your thoughts on that scenario specifically? Because I had some conversations with people about why isn't the rule just get in the box? Like if you're, if you're two feet are in the box, by the time, by eight second mark for a hitter, you should be ready. The umpire shouldn't have to decide, are you looking at the pitcher? Are you giving your attention to the pitcher? It, it'd be a lot easier if it was just two feet in the box. Where do you stand on that one? Because there was a lot of outrage for this one online. And initially I was, I think even still now, I think the call made was correct because Conley was sitting there kind of waving his bat around a little bit. Um, tapping the bat on his on his feet, just the normal stuff you see hitters do before they're hitting. Um, and obviously, you, you normally don't see this called. 
as a pitch clock violation. It's brand new to us. So what do you think about that whole scenario and, and where you draw the line for hitters? So I, I am in favor and a proponent of the pitch clock rules, but that call did not sit right with me. And my issue is not whether the umpire correctly implemented the rule as was as has been given to the umpires, but it's should that be a violation itself? Is that something we want to mm-hmm. be a violation when the catcher is standing up behind home plate so they're not even ready for a pitch? The batter is in the box and he's, you know, if if the pitcher wanted to get set and pitch the ball to the plate, he could do that. But then the hitter can then react, but the hitter is just not, you know, quite exactly looking at the, uh, the pitcher. I think there was another situation in, I believe it was the Mets and the Astros game where there was another violation called and he, the hitter looked set to me. So we're, we're then now leaving this up to the umpire's subjective discretion of is, is the, is the hitter alert to the pitcher by the eight second mark? I'd rather say, okay, look, if, if his feet are in the box, he's, he's ready to hit. Let's not call it a violation yeah. at that point. I do think that the catcher is almost irrelevant to this. If the catcher's standing up, I mean, the pitcher and catcher have more time by definition for these rules. So him standing up doesn't really bother me. The hitter still has to be ready. But I do agree with you that it just seems much more cut and dry if the rule is simply both feet in the box. You don't have to do any sort of... You don't have to make these tight judgment calls about was his attention really on the pitcher? Was he starting to? It's just, are your feet in the box... At eight seconds, it seems like the easiest way to draw a line because you have to draw a line somewhere. And I guess there are always going to be these edge cases, especially at the beginning when players are getting adjusted to it. Uh, but it does seem like that would make it a little bit more simple. But in terms of, of the pitch clock results overall, it seemed like it was mostly positive. I mean, there was a lot of outrage on social media, and I think negative opinions in general, get amplified on social media. There's a lot of evidence of that over the years. I, I haven't seen that at all, Carlos. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> good. You haven't been on social media. That's, that's good for you, Ben. But in most of the polls, when people are actually asking, do you like this, it seems like a large majority, like 70% numbers that I've seen from a few different writers who've, who've polled people, do you like the pitch clock? And most people seem to be on board. I know there are still a few vocal players who seem to hate it and, and think it's messing with the rhythm of the game. But I think to your point, we're almost trying to get back to what the rhythm of the game previously was. Before it needs to be messed with. Exactly. And I think teams, I think sports and, and adjusting rules in sports should always, you should always be trying to tweak where necessary as the game develops and changes to create a fun product. Because at the end of the day, it's entertainment and you don't want to, you don't want to have teams and players basically figure out the most ideal ways to play that results in a worse product on the field and, and where you can change rules to lead to different outcomes in terms of style of pay, play, pace of play, bat of ball outcomes, athleticism. I think we should be trying to do that. And I think that's, that's baseball's goal here. And I think 
Um, that's what the pitch clock does. I would, I would prefer if we just started with the pitch clock and maybe didn't have so many rules um, kind of going into place at once so we could maybe isolate what the pitch clock really does. Now it's going to be muddled with the shift rules and the extra, uh, the larger bases. Basically, I, I would like to see what the pitch clock did for the offensive environment of baseball if, if we still allowed shifting. Um, but I'm not too bent out of shape about shifting. It's, it's fine. I think it'll encourage more, more athletic defenders, which, which I'm also in favor of. You still have to get 27 outs. Yep. I mean, the, the, when I hear people say, oh, the beauty of baseball is that there's no clock. Mm-hmm. There, there still is no clock for the game as a whole. You, yep. you have to, you have to get all of those outs. That's what that kind of cliche <laughs> is referring to. It's not the beauty of baseball is uh, you can is that Pedro Baez can take two minutes in between <laughs> every pitch. The... the beauty of it is you can't like the NFL just run out the clock. Mm-hmm. at the end of a game and, and take kneel downs yes. uh, or just run the ball and, and try to waste time at the end of the game. It's no, you have to get those 27 outs yep. and that is still there, but you just can't take forever in between each pitch and it just creates better, better flow to the game, better rhythm, better action throughout the game. And I mean, it's true. I think it's true as a fan, your experience is enhanced whether you're at the game itself or whether you're, you know, somebody like us where we're either at a minor league game or, or at a game for, you know, the amateur level and we're getting back and then, oh, all right, cool. Now I have more time to watch another game. Or if I'm just sitting at home on a Thursday night or a Saturday all day, yeah, now I have more time to watch even more baseball. Yep. So it doesn't give you less baseball it just gives you even more opportunity and more time to watch even more baseball if mm-hmm. if you're a diehard like like we are yeah it just condenses the baseball you're getting into a, a smaller time frame uh and, and i think there we're going to see some different results in in the balance between pitching and hitting right now it feels like the hitters are almost struggling more to adjust to the pitch clock than the pitchers are and i think there are a lot of reasons for that but i do think in the long run, it, w- it wouldn't shock me if we saw pitchers unable to max effort throws so consistently that we just f- see more balls in play in general. And I think the game has slowly gone towards more three true outcomes uh, as, as power is emphasized because it's so hard to string together hits because the pitchers are so good and because starters aren't going as long. You have specialist relievers, and it seems like every reliever in baseball – is throwing 97 miles per hour with filthy secondary stuff. Um, so I think this will be beneficial in a number of ways, and I'm excited for, for more people to to see it. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't want to talk about pitch clock for for 30 minutes, Ben. So you want to talk about our farm system rankings that dropped on the site? Yeah, new farm system rankings, Baltimore Orioles, number one. Were they like the clear cut? Number one for you, Carlos, do you think there's another team that has a a case for number one? To me, I thought I thought they were the the clear number one for me, and it's even more impressive that they're in that spot given that they just graduated Adley Rushman, who's already one of the best catchers in in baseball. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think they're they're the clear top tier 
to your point, it's very hard to graduate a number one prospect and then immediately have a number one prospect in baseball come up right behind him. It has not happened very often in Baseball America's history. Uh, there have been some examples of players just kind of retaining number one status year over year, but two different players um, going into and out of those spots because they've graduated, not because they've um, like fallen out of the number one spot after reaching it is, is very impressive. I think what I love about Baltimore's system and what feels like the safest demographic of player to invest in is that it's just littered with impactful everyday position players uh, and a lot of players who are playing premium positions or left side of the infield or center field or catcher, if we're still talking about Adley Rutschman. I mean, I made this comment before. I don't know if I made it on this podcast, but if you look at the top 10 for the Orioles, and let me actually make sure I'm looking at their current one and not the, I have the prospect handbook, the digital version of that, which you can get if you bought it from us, which I think is awesome. Um, but just pulling up their their current top 10, Gunnar Henderson, one, Grayson Rodriguez, two, right-handed pitcher, shortstop Jackson Holiday number three, outfielder Colton Kowser, number four, left-handed pitcher D.L. Hall, number five, Jordan Westberg, shortstop third base, six, second baseman Connor Norby, seven, Joey Ortiz, shortstop second base, eight, Kyle Stowers, outfielder, nine, and then third baseman Kobe Mayo at 10. All of these guys take out Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall, who are pitchers, it would not surprise me if every single one of those position players wound up being everyday regulars. And that seems insane for a third of your top 30 to have that sort of upside and it not be crazy to think that they're going to get there. A lot of these players are also high up in the minors. It's not like we're projecting a ton of lower level hitters who have a lot to do, a lot to prove. There's a lot of volatility. I just think it's a very, very strong and deep top group. And I also think they've got a lot of tools and upside and excitement beyond that top 10. Heston Kerstad, I mean, his his career has been sidetracked a little bit because of things completely out of his control. There's a chance that he comes back and, and looks great. He's looked good in spring training. Maybe we'll touch on him when we, we get to some spring training guys. Dylan Beavers has tools. Judd Fabian has tools. He had a strong debut. I still like Seth Johnson a little bit, a right-hander. I mean, they just have tons and tons of guys who I feel very confident in. And I think the combination of impact at the top and quality of depth at the top makes it a very clear top tier system for me. I think it's really Baltimore and then you get into a secondary tier that includes three teams for me. And even after Arizona added Gabriel Moreno, who is a top 15 prospect in baseball and maybe the one of the best catching prospects in baseball who is big league ready now, it was still very clear for me that, that it's Baltimore in the number one spot. Yeah. I mean, you have the number one prospect in baseball, Gunnar Henderson, Grayson Rodriguez has a case to be the number one pitching prospect, or he's at least in that top tier with painter and uh, Andrew painter with the Phillies, Yuri yeah. Perez with the Marlins, Jackson holiday. I mean, would not surprise me if they ended up having another number one prospect in baseball in, in the next couple of years. And if that was Jackson holiday, I mean, he's, he's at least in that conversation, all the, all the feedback on him over the last like year and a half just continues to be up, 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 up on him. Um, and then, like you said, there's even a depth of players beyond that, especially on the 
position player side of of guys who have a chance to be regulars. And that's even even with years of being a total non-factor in Latin America where they really don't have Latin American prospects who are any good at the full season level yet. This all the top 10 players that that I listed are all draft drafted players. So it's actually kind of crazy that they've done that while basically ignoring a significant avenue of talent. And I think it's a credit to what they've been able to do in in both scouting on the draft side and and player development overall. Um, But I mean, how much better could they have been if they actually tried in the international market years ago? I mean, yeah, just give them like an, yeah, just give them say an average international pipeline and you know you could be adding some pretty good players into into that mix and they just don't have it yet obviously it's it's changing now right like they signed samuel basayo you know luis almeida they have some good players who they signed since you know mike elias came in and um and kobe perez took over running their international department and obviously the the ownership change as well this has been a factor so um but you just haven't seen that those players that those players just haven't had time yet to get to the full season level uh which you know again speaks to one the quality of their drafts but also i mean <laughs> that's their draft position it, it helps when you're picking uh adley rushman and jackson holiday and you're getting these guys at the very top of the draft mm-hmm. but even still you know grayson rodriguez was not the number one overall pick in the draft. Gunnar Henderson was not a first-round pick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of these other guys, you know, Jordan Westberg, Connor Norby that we're talking about were not the, you know, top five overall type picks. So they've they've hit on guys beyond just the very, very top picks yeah. as well. I think that's a good point about where they've been picking. It is obviously a lot easier to acquire elite talent when you're picking one, two, five, one in the draft for four straight years. But I also think, too, that you've got to give the Orioles credit for hitting on all those players because we have seen and we've talked about as recently as last episode on this podcast, teams who are picking in the top 10 who have came away with really nothing. I mean, the A's weren't picking in the top five, but the years they took A.J. Puck, Austin Beck, Kyler Murray, top 10, you would want to do those over if you could. The Orioles, I mean, depending on what happens with Heston Kerstad this year, there's a good chance they hit home runs with every single one of their first round picks. And yes, being in that position matters, um, but it's still tough to make sure you don't miss in the draft in any year. Maybe you could say that the Orioles were lucky that one of their number one overall picks was a a year in 2019 where there was a clear cut top player in the class. Like an Adley Rutschman is not coming around regularly. And I think the nationals were, were a team that was also lucky to stumble into a couple of those drafts with Bryce Harper and Steven Strasburg, where you, you just kind of had the guy who you knew was the clear-cut best player. Yeah, it's good fortunate. timing. Yeah, it's fortunate to be in the, in that scenario then, like compared to the Tigers um, picking number one overall in the 2020 draft, or excuse me, 2018 draft. I mean, that, that draft class at the top um, just didn't look near as good as the 2019 class. So certainly there's some luck involved, but I think – Overall, it seems like the Orioles have a pretty excellent process um, that's that's led to some good results and hopefully will lead to sustained success at the major league level. Um, because I think it, it, it's, it probably will, right? I mean, if you just look at the history 
of teams who have, you know, a number one farm system in baseball. I mean, it's such a tired thing when you see, oh, the Orioles have the number one farm system in baseball this year or the, you know, back in 27, 18, the Braves with the number one farm system in baseball. And when you see reactions like, who cares? Like, I don't care about prospects. I care about a banner for the farm system. Yeah, exactly. When's the parade? Well, probably in like the next five years, dude. Like that's (laughs) where, like, where do you think all of these major league players come from? They were all once prospects, right? It's a good thing. It, it, you know, studies show that having lots of good young baseball players is good for baseball teams, right? I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> 27 and 18, the Braves were our number one farm system in baseball. They won a World Series. 2016, it was the Dodgers. 2015, it was the Cubs. Those teams all have gone on to win the World Series. It's, you know, too soon to say for, for the team since then. But, you know, 2019, Padres looks pretty good for them. Yep. 2020 and 2021 it was the tampa bay rays i mean they're consistently in contention 2022 was the mariners um you know with julio rodriguez and and george kirby and all those guys and yeah so far so good um and if you just look back even you know you go back further teams like the royals obviously were uh, a big deal when they had their uh, their number one farm system in, in 2011. Now, it's not a guarantee that you're going to win a World Series, but, I mean, you look even after I that. Think Pirates are a pretty good example of, of one of the org, or one of the number one farms that maybe didn't pan out so well. Right. You need to still continue to invest uh, wisely in other areas of the club and not trade Tyler Glasnow and Austin Meadows and uh, – you know, make some, they made some rough trades, but, uh, you know, the Cardinals in, in 2013, these teams were in position to, you know, they, they were, they ended up producing very good major league teams, playoff teams. A lot of it was built around this, you know, homegrown core mm-hmm. that they had. So you need a combination of good, good decisions and also just good luck as well to be able to ultimately pull off a championship. But, uh, I think it should be pretty obvious that having a bunch of really talented young players who are going to be under team control for the next six plus seasons is going to be beneficial for the organization Absolutely. in the near future. So it, this might be a hard comparison to make, but I am curious, like how good you think this Orioles farm system is compared to some of these other number one farm systems that we just talked about. I mean, I was asking JJ when he was doing this exercise, just looking at the success rate of the number one farm systems over the last 15 years, the 2017-2018 Braves system that had players like Dansby Swanson, Ozzy Albies, Mike Soroka, Ronald Acuna, Kyle Wright, William Contreras, Austin Riley, and even a few other arms, that one felt like the, the best overall system of this like 15-year stretch. And I'm curious what some of the best number one farms are that that you remember, Ben, in your time covering prospects with Baseball America, and also where this Orioles system stacks up. Because I think I wasn't super involved on the prospect side of things in 2017 and 2018 when the Braves had their number one system. I, I was kind of doing a handbook chapter and chipping in, but was not as involved in top 100 meetings or just 
Um, I was mostly focused on the draft and trying to learn how to do draft coverage. Um, but where would you slot in this Orioles farm in terms of impact and quality and expectations and, and just comparing it to some of these other really impressive systems? Because to me, it would be very close up there. I think I, I like it over some of these other number ones that we're looking at. And I guess it's also impossible to say this accurately because with all these other systems, we've got so much hindsight bias. But if you can kind of put yourself in that space, how would you how do you rank this Orioles form? It's, it's good. Yeah. I mean, it certainly is a, it's not like a system where we're like, yeah, they're number one, but it's not like they're a, in a really elite farm system. We could have gone a number of different ways. No, I think they, to me are the clear number one. I mean, that 2016 Dodgers farm system, which I think I wrote up that chapter for them, if I remember right. But I mean, they had, Seeger and Bellinger and Walker Buehler and Julio Urias and uh, Verdugo, they they had a ton of talent. I you know, obviously think back to the Royals back when they were coming up, and they had Hosmer and Mustakis and Will Myers, and then Salvador Perez was like, well, what are we going to do with Salvador Perez? Because we have Will Myers behind the plate, but maybe Myers will move. Well, no, Salvador Perez might just be the best player of mm-hmm. of all of them. Uh, Jordano Ventura, Kelvin Herrera uh, on the mound. So, um, and then and then I think the Rays too with the you know about geez probably like fifteen years ago, just when I was starting at at BA and and they had you know they they were consistently picking at the very top of the draft again like the like the Orioles have been. They were able to get David Price and Evan Longoria and. You know, you still miss on a guy like a Tim Beckham, uh, although, you know, he's played in the big leagues, but wasn't probably the expectations you had as a number one pick. But, yeah. um, you know, Matt Moore, Wade Davis, uh, Desmond Jennings, uh, who, you know, did have a solid career, but I thought he'd be even uh, better than than he was. And then the, the Angels also had some good farm systems. Uh, I forget if they were ever number one, but some of the, the talent they had back in back in the you know, even pre pre my time at uh, at mm-hmm. BA was was pretty impressive. The Rays, <laughs> the Rays draft capital in the early two thousands is actually insane. When you're mentioning them picking so high so often, in nineteen ninety nine they had the number one overall pick. They took Josh Hamilton. In two thousand they had the number six overall pick. They took Rocco Baldelli. In two thousand one they picked number three. They took Dewan Brazelton, right handed pitcher. In 2002, with pick number two, they took B.J. Upton. In 2003, with the first pick overall, they took Delman Young. In 2004, with the fourth pick, they took right-hander Jeff Neiman. In 2005, with the number eighth pick, they took right-hander Wade Townsend. In 2006, with the third pick, they took Evan Longoria. And then in 2007 and 2008, they had the number one pick both years. They took left-hander David Price and Tim Beckham. I don't know if there's a record for most years consecutively picking in the top 10 picks but i'm going to assume the rays are are holding that record those are those are some very bad devil rays teams back in the day but tanking works <laughs> it does work i mean you get access to adley rush i mean adley rushman is a top what top five catcher in baseball right now yep the orioles have him under team control for minimal cost especially for the next couple seasons for the next what five seasons now i mean what what free agents were you signing 
the the year that he was drafted that are going to be more valuable mm-hmm. than Adley Rushman right now. And his obviously he's cost a, a fraction of it because the I mean, if if Adley Rushman could have signed a true free agent contract <laughs> at the time he was coming out of college, I mean, he would have signed for a uh, hundred million dollars, pro- something probably. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean you know, to, yeah, depend on the on the years, but yeah, <laughs> these guys. So it's the the teams that are tanking are are not dumb. I get the pushback against it, but yeah. it works. Now, obviously, you still have to make other wise decisions <laughs> beyond just tanking mm-hmm. to make it work. But I think the other thing about having a number one farm system in baseball is it's indicative probably not just of the level of talent that you have in your farm system, but also it's likely indicative of a team that has just a team that knows what they're doing, right? Like a team that has good talent judgment, mm-hmm. good evaluators in the organization, and is able to make good personnel decisions. So it's probably just a good sign that, hey, you have a front office in place that knows what they're doing. Now, success drafting or success signing international players doesn't necessarily translate into, you know, making good free agent decisions or or making good trades. Mm -hmm. But there's probably some correlation there with a front office that is, you know, has has good judgment over what they're doing. Yeah. That probably gets into a couple other teams who I view it in the next tier. And I'm curious how you view the next tier. For me, it's Baltimore in a tier that are on at one. And then I think the next three teams, the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the Cleveland Guardians, I view that as like the clear-cut second tier. And then I think there's another fall-off at number five to the Mets. But before I ask about um, just their systems and, and the fact that they've been drafting in different places, do you view the those tiers similarly uh yeah i i think so um yeah the mets the mets are a tough one because we we include foreign professionals in there so if you're rookie eligible if you or if you haven't met our prospects thresholds thresholds yeah thresholds of the 130 at bats or, or 50 innings then we include you so yeah. so for the mets they get kode senga in there which to me like i'm gonna push for us next year i think to to no longer include just the veteran foreign professional players because it it made sense i think at a time when you know there especially the cuban players there were so many players coming over at mm-hmm. all different ages and it's like where do you set the cutoff like obviously yulieski guriel coming over is not you know the Astros are not signing him expecting him to go to AAA like no it's like a 32 yeah. year old or 31 however old he was player who's probably already on the decline phase frankly <laughs> of of his career and it's too bad he never played in the big leagues because he would have been a or, or before then because he would have been a yeah. perennial all-stars I mean the real I mean potentially a hall of fame type player that's how good he was mm-hmm in cuba from the time he was in his early 20s but um you know then you take somebody like his younger brother lord is jr who 
yeah, he signed a major league contract. He was exempt from the bonus pools at the time, but you know, he's 23 years old. He clearly was a prospect. Um, but now that MLB's changed the qualifications for what constitutes a quote unquote foreign professional mm-hmm. in their eyes to 25 years old with six plus seasons in a foreign pro league like Siri Nacional in Cuba or KBO in, in Korea, uh, Nippon professional baseball in Japan, um, probably makes more sense to me to, to, you know, obviously we'll still cover those players, but to me, a, those guys don't really fit in as prospects like him or, or Yoshida with the Red Sox the same way we're talking about a, you know, a Francisco Alvarez or or a Jet Williams. With, I, with I am Mets. glad you brought this up because we've been talking about this a little bit at, at BA, kind of behind the scenes. And I came to it from a different perspective, but but obviously I'm you've been around much longer, Ben, so you, you probably have much better context for all this. But the, the way I thought about it was the reason prospect coverage resonates with so many people is because they just want to know who's coming to their team and who's playing for their team uh, either next year or three years down the line in baseball America when it started was very interested in, in telling people about these players. Uh, and so for me, I'm not as adamant about the older players not counting as prospects because for a lot of these players like a Cody Senga, I think that the BA is in a good position to tell people about who this player is and what he's going to do for the team. And I think for me, it's, it's mostly just about highlighting what a player is and giving a scouting report on a player. And yes, Senga is very different than Jet Williams and Kevin Parada simply because of age and presumably it's kind of a plug and play player. You know what he is. He's going to go right to the major leagues. But I do think there's some value in a report of Senga sitting right beside or around a report of Kevin Parada because readers will be able to compare and contrast those players. Uh, and it's still telling you about a player that you might not know of. I guess I just don't know. Like I want to hold on to these players in the prospect handbook. I'm not too I'm not too bummed about them being included, but I I do acknowledge that that not everyone does it the same way, and many people don't view them as quote unquote prospects. But for me, I just think people just want to know who's about to play for their team that they haven't seen yet at the big leagues. So that's, yeah, that's kind of- leave a comment and tell us what you guys think because these are the conversations that we have. But for me, it's. Again, I, I would, you know, we're still going to cover these players and write scouting reports on them, and they they would still be, you know, saying in the append. What do you think is the benefit of not including them in a farm system ranking? I guess if we're still writing scouting reports, we're still breaking them down. You just don't think teams view that as the farm? It's more of like a free agent acquisition. Yeah, they're not in the farm system, right? So they're still rookie eligible. So, we, you know, we come at our, our top 20 rookies list mm-hmm. or our, our FYPD rankings for dynasty leagues. Well, obviously, we'd still include them in those. But, you know, we're ranking the top farm systems or we're ranking the top players who are in a farm system. Mm-hmm. These guys are basically being signed as the equivalent of major league free agents. Uh, they haven't played in the major leagues yet, but... These guys are being signed with the intention of they're going to play in MLB from day one, and they're not going to spend any non-rehab time playing in the minor leagues at all. Yeah. And I think my, my sense from a lot of fans, and again, you know, leave us comments and let us know 
what you think, but my sense is, you know, the the fans, our, our readers, don't necessarily want us to rank the players within a prospect list because these guys aren't necessarily prospects. Unless maybe you're a Mets fan, you're like, oh, this will juice up our <laughs> rankings, or a Red Sox fan, this will juice the. Or if you're the... just a big hall prospects guy, like I must be now. You're you're small hall prospects. I'm big hall prospects. No, but no, you know I, what? I am curious you... to know what you guys think because. That, that will certainly inform my opinions moving what forward. What would really juice the Mets' rankings? So where, what would you think of the Mets if they still had Pete Crow Armstrong oh my and and if they still had Andy Rodriguez? I probably would view them in the next tier up. I wouldn't view it as a tier break. I don't know if I would definitely have them like above Cleveland or above Los Angeles. I, I think the depth of New York would just be more comparable to all the teams in front of them, because I do think one of the criticisms of the Mets system is a lack of depth once you get beyond the top grouping. And I feel like Peter Armstrong would help kind of bridge bridge the gap of their talent and kind of connect the waves and make me feel a little bit better in terms of the the consistency of, of players coming through the system and just lengthen out the, the impact depth that I see. Um, but I don't necessarily think it would be a clear jump over Cleveland or a clear jump over Los Angeles. I would just bucket all four of those teams together, probably. See, I, I would, because again, if you include Senga, that would give them mm-hmm. that would give them eight top one hundred prospects. Mm-hmm. It would give them let's see, Francisco Alvarez, Senga, Beatty, mm-hmm. PCA. Andy Rodriguez, Kevin Parada. So that's what, six players in the top 50? That's pretty loud. I mean, so, the, and that, so again, like credit to the Mets amateur scouting, because those guys were all players that they signed, you know, and it's, it kind of shuffles through different regimes there with the Mets, but both, both domestically and internationally again we can take out Senga for for a moment but mm-hmm. PCA Andy Rodriguez Kevin Parada uh, Francisco Alvarez I think the the combination of of that plus maybe the injuries that Cleveland recently sustained Baby I could, too. Yeah. I could definitely see a case maybe for them jumping Cleveland now as you kind of highlight this it, that would be really impressive um, yeah the Espino injury really hurts I feel like when you're top prospect is dealing with a shoulder injury, already had some injury questions. Um, George Valera is dealing with injury, Chase DeLauder, like even though DeLauder wasn't on the top 100, but that's a lot of injuries to your top prospects. So I could see them, I could see them jumping maybe. I think you make a good point. Good case. I mean, they would have, in Something. that case, I was going to say they would have more top 50 guys than the D-backs. Now the D-backs have, I think, what, three of the top 15 so 15, that's yeah. yeah and four of the top 25 so that's still yeah that's that's pretty, concentrated talent right there someone last i think it was last fall or winter i had i just made a comment on twitter about the mets having a good system and they're like oh the mets have a bad system like really do people think the mets have a, a poor farm system i think it's really good there's a lot of big league ready players again i guess you don't want to count cody singa but i mean brett Beatty, francisco alvarez i think those are really impactful players. I like Alex Ramirez. I'm not sure about Ronnie Mauricio, but he's certainly got a lot of talent. Um, I think it's a fun system. You know, it's like a weird criticism I see sometimes where people be like, yeah, well, the Mets are ranked here, 
but it's about to go downhill pretty soon because they're about to graduate Alvarez and like and Beatty. It's like, well, where do you think they're going to go? Yeah, they're about to go to the Mets major league team and be under team control for <laughs> the next six years. Like that's yeah, this is the whole point of the farm system rankings here. <laughs> yeah. All right. What about other teams that maybe surprised you who were in the top 10 is the next grouping of teams. I'm sure the tiers get bigger as we go down. That's typically how it works. But are there any other teams outside of this, this kind of elite group or this top five group that maybe surprised you that you like, or maybe who are even in the top 10 that, that you personally wouldn't have if it was just a Ben Badler list. How do you view this like six to maybe 12, 13, 14, if, if we go that deep range? Yeah, I think the, I mean, the Nationals, so much of their farm system is like so dependent on that Juan Soto trade. Um, that is going to be such a fun trade just to look at for the next, I don't know, six years, 10 years. We'll probably have radically different opinions as we go through the years, depending on just how these players look any given year. Yeah, so I mean, the top of the system, obviously, with James Wood at the top of it is is extremely good and then you know the back half of that system is like oh i don't know <laughs> gotta gotta squint a lot to to see some future big leaguers back there i i think the thing by the time i think you get to i would say 10 with the red Sox, like i saw some stuff on twitter about people arguing about whether the red Sox. What, like one is a top as having the number 10 farm system, like a great thing to celebrate. I, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I think the red, the red Sox are hilarious to me because I, I saw the same thing. I think it was today, even this morning, got on Twitter or when did our farm system rankings drop was it yesterday on Wednesday? Yeah. Yeah. I think I caught up today though. I don't think I saw the chatter if it was happening yesterday. But I saw a bunch of Red Sox fans just super excited about having top 10, praising Heim Bloom for all, all he's done. And the Red Sox have moved up the board for, for our rankings in 2019. They were last. They were at 30 in 2020 and 2021. They were at 20. Now they're at um, 10. Or excuse me, I skipped one. 2022, I'm going crazy here. 2022, they were 11, and now they're at 10. So they've moved up the board for us. But I think, I think all of the Red Sox chatter was purely because other outlets and I think Keith Law had the Red Sox 23 and people's I think people anchor their thoughts very quickly whichever list comes out first um, the reactions to the list that come out after are going to be viewed very differently and so obviously for Red Sox fans they probably just think our content is better than Keith's in this scenario because I mean this is probably the case with everyone well I think the the Red Sox are I think the, the reaction from Red Sox fans is more of a split camp because there's okay. definitely the celebrating. Well, there's definitely a impassioned and understandably so section of the fan base that just wants the front office gone because they let the Mookie. Be- dicey, yeah. yeah, well, going. I mean, just going back to like Mookie Betts and then letting Bogarts go, and it it was not a good off season for the Red Sox. It's not. <laughs> It's going to be, a, I think, another rough year for the Major League Club. And I think, again, just the, the bigger thing for me is, I don't know, anywhere from, t- again, we talked about the, the top tier 
farm systems, mm-hmm. the Red Sox, from anywhere from like, I don't know, 10 to 16, 17, like, I don't know. It's, there's not a lot of separation between them. And I think you can make a pretty compelling argument to put those teams in any order. And it's yeah. a bit of a pick your flavor based on what you value or some some differences of opinions on yes. those players. So I and, and again the, the Red Sox also have Yoshida included in in our ranking so that boosts them up uh yes. a little bit. But like, you know, I think the Red Sox are like a you know a, a very solid middle tier type system to me with two great prospects at the top with with Marcella Meyer and Tristan Cassis and I really like Miguel Blaze. And then the rest of the system is, you know, pretty comparable to uh, a lot of the other systems who we have ranked in, you know, the middle of the pack right now. Yeah, I agree. I think your point about the separation between organizations at this range being razor thin is spot on. Uh, it basically comes down to, are you someone who prefers having quality depth? Are you someone who prefers having those impact prospects at the top? Are you more inclined to go with a team that, that has a little bit better quality of hitters? Are you more inclined to penalize a team that maybe has more of their talent at the top um, in, in pitching prospects? So I think all of those factor in. I'd say in general at Baseball America, it seems like we steer more towards, uh, for tiebreakers, it, it feels like just after the conversations we've had, we steer more towards impact at the top being a separator um, and if we had to choose we would choose hitters although I think everyone who, who covers prospects would would acknowledge that hitters are simply safer than arms um, so that's how I view it do you think there's any argument to make for for quality of depth being being a separator over a few impact players at the top or are you just kind of in line with what I just said here it it depends I mean Good luck if you're trying to trade for, not that there's a lot of prospect for prospect trades anyway, but good luck if you want to go to the Red Sox and say, hey, we'll trade you our number 12 and 15 and 17 and 19 prospects, and you can give us Marcella Meyer. Mm -hmm. Like They're just going to laugh at you and say, no, because those true high end, especially a top 25 prospect in baseball, particularly for a position player Mm -hmm. is extremely valuable. The history just shows that. And it's not because we're that smart. It's just because the talent level is so obvious and the risk tends to be pretty low with those players, especially in terms of injury risk relative to pitchers. And usually if they're already ranked that high, it's because they've proven themselves to a, a reasonable level also in pro ball. Um, but then the second factor is, is it, do you think a farm system is deep just because you know that farm system more acutely com- relative to other teams? Or is it a team with what I would consider truly, truly deep level of prospects like the Guardians? Mm-hmm. Um because I think if, if you just follow one farm system or if it's a farm system that you cover, yeah, you're going to know the, let's say the Cubs number 27 prospect and the Cubs number 19 prospect and their number 41 prospect better 
then you're going to know the same the equivalent players in the Red Sox or the or, Cardinals, or even higher ranked players in other systems. Yeah, because oh yeah, oh we have this guy. He's he's number twenty four for us, and he throws ninety nine miles an hour. Well, yeah, like he's also a reliever, and he can't throw strikes, and the team that's ranked ahead of him mm-hmm. has like four guys who are just like that. You just don't know who they are yeah. because you don't follow them as closely. And, and I'm not like, look, I, the same bias applies to myself mm-hmm. as well. Like if I'm, if I'm writing up the, let's say the Brewers farm system, I'm going to know that, you know, their top 50 prospects, you know, their numbers, you know, 20 through 50 guys better than I'm going to know the 20 to 50 guys for, you know, a team that I'm not responsible for, uh, for writing up myself. Yeah. That's why the BA grades are just so important and being able to have a consistent way to quantify players is so important. And mm-hmm. in an ideal world that would allow you to very confidently compare different systems and different players with accuracy, obviously, different people have different biases and you evaluate differently and you get different feedback. And so those numbers are never going to be perfect, but attempting to consistently refine the process of how do you quantify these players is super important. And I think to your point, one of the most fun things about the job for me is, is editing the prospect handbook because that's when I'm really getting a much deeper understanding of the other systems in the first few years, I'd say actually every year, that I write up a chapter, I typically only have one or two teams. I don't have three to six, like some of you guys in the prospect team have consistently. So you probably just naturally develop more context more, more quickly while doing that many teams. But I will have an opinion of the team that I wrote up myself and that opinion will start to develop as I read other chapters and get a sense of the quality of prospects um, that another team has in the 20, 10 to 20 range or the 20 to 30 range. I remember when I was reading the Guardians chapter this past year, typically when you get to, I would say, somewhere in the 10 to 17, 10 to 20 range, maybe to just open it up and be, be a little bit more um, conservative, somewhere in that range, there's quite a clear drop off in talent for most orgs, I would say. When I was reading the Guardians, I was getting into the 20s and like the back, like 25 plus, and I just felt like the quality of the prospects didn't drop off at all. And my first thought was, oh, these these grades are all too rich. We've got to we've got to tamp these down a little bit. And it turned out that wasn't the case at all. They just had insane quality of depth, and it was a, a stark contrast to writing the Braves this year, um, who were pretty clearly the the, the worst team. We can get to that more, but any thoughts on just how the process makes you think of teams differently or, or changes your opinion of, of a team maybe that you've already written? Because for me, I feel like it's it's almost like the fog of war is clearing as you uh, read more and more chapters and you get a better idea of how, how each org compares to others. Well, I think that's the value, too, of having so many people on our staff who contribute to our prospect rankings and contribute mm-hmm. to the prospect handbook as you just have more diversity of thought on staff and people contributing to the reports and, and to the rankings. So it's not just, you know, it's not like just me or it's not just you. It's not just one person forming an opinion. You have to, um, you know, not necessarily defend your work, but you have well, to in some cases take input defend. from other 
people as well. Yeah, I think I think you do have to defend at some times because if you have certain grades on a player, you have a certain role on a player, and you can't defend it. I mean, that tells you something. If some people question it and you don't have a good defense, like ideally you'd be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I didn't, I hadn't really considered that. I hadn't thought of it from that angle. I need to go back and and kind of reflect what I'm doing, change, tamp things down, make it more accurate. I do think it feels like there's no doubt that the more people who are involved, um, the more accurate we're going to be overall. Um, you just have those kind of safety, those guardrails, um, having other people look at everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily defend as in you want to like become entrenched in your position, Yeah. but you're, you're, you have to listen. You're, you're forced to listen to more feedback from other people and say, Hmm, you know what? Maybe I am, too high on this guy or maybe this guy does need to move up or i'm too high on this system overall have you have you ever had a, a scenario where you got yourself entrenched and whether you were right about it or wrong about it that for whatever reason whether it's a player or, or a farm system ranking that you really felt strongly about that other people kind of fought back against do you have any examples of that i think one of the one of the times that i did this in a negative way i'm not sure if i've talked about it previously but adrian del castillo catcher with Miami in the what draft class would this have been 2021 21 yeah yeah I think I I just got entrenched too much and in, in the, the all the feedback I got prior to the season and just didn't react enough um in in hindsight I, I would have reacted a lot more and moved him down are there any examples you have of uh of, of that not happening with you uh trying to think of one that will make me look bad but good, the man. The one I well, the one I can think of is like Alejandro Kirk, <laughs> and my my immense belief in his uh, hitting ability. But uh, this when he the, looks pretty uh, good right now. Short hitter fondness began, or did that happen even before Kirk? Oh, that long uh, that long predates Alejandro <laughs> Alejandro Kirk, especially even there's the bad body catcher going back to Pablo Sandoval when he was. Uh, <laughs> A minor league player until they obviously drafted Buster Posey and they said, "Hmm, go find somewhere else to <laughs> to play." Oh gosh, that's good. Yeah, baseball is a humbling sport, man. You can't you can't be too confident in yourself. Um, there's always things you're not going to know. You never know how things are going to pan out. Any other teams in the ten to twenty range? Getting back to our farm system rankings that stand out to you for for one reason or another. Uh... I actually kind of like Miami's system. It's interesting. I feel yeah. like Josh, who wrote it, was maybe more pessimistic about this system. Um, maybe that's just Josh's general outlook on life is, is a little more pessimistic than mine, uh, which I don't think he would disagree with. But what stands out to me about Miami is they have so much upside here and so much risk that for a team that that's at 20 in the back third. I kind of like that volatility of player profile because if you have a couple of them go well, it could wind up turning out much better than you expect. Uh, I know there's a lot of injury questions with their pitchers. Uh, Max Meyer and Sixto Sanchez, there are questions there. Um, Jacob Berry, again, very questionable debut. Khalil Watson, same thing. There's, There's a lot of tools and upside here, but very, very real questions in addition to a lot of players with, with questionable impact, but back to ball skills. I just think in this range on the board, I'm fascinated about this org because if things do go well, I think you're looking at a lot of really impactful players, 
even if that, that might not be a high probability for a lot of them to do so. Yeah, I'm uh, the Rockies are an intriguing system to me because they have a mix of players where I think I'm just higher on them relative to other people, whether it's Adiel Amador or, you know, Ezekiel Tovar, Zach Veen are are probably more consensus guys. Whereas, like, you know, I think let's talk about Zach Veen for a second because he did drop on our top 100 list. There are questions about impact now. You, you might still be higher on him relative to where we have on our board, our top 100 right now. What do you think about his power outlook? Because I know that's that's basically the big question with him right now is he hasn't hit for as much power as teams expected him to. He's He's been more of a runner than a power hitter, which is kind of surprising given his, his draft profile and the body, the raw power he showed in high school. Do you think this is just he hasn't really tapped into it yet and he's going to, or you're high on him regardless of significant power increases? Yeah, I think I think there's more power in there than what he's necessarily shown so far in games. I, I think like you kind of alluded to, if you just watch him take BP, there's there's pretty big power in there. This is not some little guy <laughs> either. This is a pretty big, strong, physical guy. Uh, he draws walks. Again, I think there's going to be more power coming and the – the good thing is, yeah, like the speed and defense part of his game is better than I would have expected. So I'm I'm very comfortable betting on some of that game power. And again, it's not like he's been some slap hitter either, but yeah. I'm more than comfortable betting on the game power ticking up just as he gets older, continues to get stronger and continues to have his approach evolve as a hitter. Okay, so Rockies, Marlins, any the other ones are any... well. One that's I, again, I, I don't know that they're underrated, but the the Brewers again, it probably just depends on how much you value the upside mm-hmm. versus the depth. Because I mean, you have Jackson Churio, who's probably going to be the number one prospect in baseball pretty soon. Yep. I mean, Sal Freelich continues just to keep ticking up and up uh got the triple a i think he's a rookie of the year candidate this year i mean joey weimer bryce terrain garrett mitchell will all see big league time this year uh you know they have their top 10 is pretty strong uh and their top 15 is is pretty solid after that you know they have some interesting ish guys but uh, you know maybe like a, a Luke Adams could be a, a breakout guy for them. Uh, don't want to give up on Hedbert Perez yet. There's still something there and they have some pretty intriguing shortstops from uh, mostly Venezuela at, at uh, the very, very lower levels who, you know, wait and see on, on those guys. But it's, it's definitely not the depth of the system that stands out. It's how much do you value, especially I think a guy at the top like Jackson Churio, um, because there's you know really obviously only a couple of teams in baseball that have a, a better prospect than him. Yeah, and they have a ton of up the middle hitters. I'm actually surprised by the lack of pitching they have at the top of their system. Yes, just because of I mean they're a team that's done really well with with pitching development. Uh, I don't think it's a bad thing that they're hitter heavy, especially when we're talking about these up the middle profiles. Most of the players that you talk about 
either can play center field or will play center field or play shortstop or catchers. Um, I mean, Robert Moore is probably going to be a sec- good second baseman. So, yeah, this is a it's a fun system to me. It's a lot of profiles that I typically like. Uh, I love Frelick. I'm excited about Weimer. Garrett Mitchell forever is tantalizing. And if he can just kind of make it click with the swing, he could be a monster. I mean, if, if everything... If you're looking at 99th percentile outcomes, do you think it's fair to say that Garrett Mitchell is like second or third in the system after Chorio? Who who would be above him? I mean, there's yeah him. I'd probably put Weimer right behind him. Yeah, those just are the based two on good. like raw tools mm-hmm. and athleticism. But I mean, just the tools that Garrett Mitchell has. If he had a you know like you said a, a swing that could work. Um, and was conducive to hitting the ball in the air. And again, also could stay on the field consistently is another factor with him. Uh, there's a lot to to dream on, but it's a matter of can he actually make those adjustments. I wanted to talk about Garrett Mitchell later in the podcast when we talk about some spring training guys, but we may as well get into it right now since he's brought up. But the one thing that makes it so hard for me to fully buy in to Garrett Mitchell is – the fact that the thing that we're hoping that he figures out right now is the exact same thing that scouts were wondering if he could figure out in 2017. And before this podcast, I read all of our reports on Mitchell, and it's eerie how similar they, they all sound. So I'll read a few, a few um, lines from the scouting report uh, that we currently have for Garrett Mitchell in the prospect handbook. This is the one you wrote. Um, starting in his scouting report, it says, the question is whether Mitchell will be able to evolve his swing and approach to ever tap into that power. Uh, you would refer to plus raw power, uh, or, or his raw power grading out is at least plus before that. He uses a choppy downhill swing, geared to slap the ball, and use his wheels rather than drive the ball in the air for damage. Mitchell has made some tweaks to his setup, but his swing path and attack angle prevent him from hitting for power. Okay, we go back to the 2020 draft report. Um, So this is a report I wrote um, when he was at UCLA. He was the number six prospect at the time. I wrote, Mitchell possesses arguably the best package of tools in the 2020 draft. He's an 80-grade runner who changes games with his speed. Uh, Stuff about his defense. Mitchell shows plus raw power in batting practice, but his choppy swing produces mostly grounders and low-line drives in games. Some evaluators are optimistic Mitchell can tap into his power with swing refinements and pro ball, but his in-game power production is concerning, dating back to his high school career. Okay. Now we go to his 2017 draft report. This is when he ranked number 62 overall out of Orange Lutheran High School. I think Hudson Belinsky probably wrote this report. Uh, It might have been Kyle because Kyle also does SoCal. But either way, (laughs) at the time, coming out of high school, we wrote, as far as pure tools go, a few prospects can match what Mitchell brings to the table. He's an 80 runner capable of reaching first base in 3.9 seconds. He projects to stay in center field, has average arm strength. Mitchell has plus bat speed and shows plus raw power in batting practice. The development of Mitchell's pure hitting ability will dictate his ultimate ceiling. He has a deep load with a barred lead arm and shows a tendency to expand the strike zone. He's tinkered with his mechanics throughout his draft year. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty much all I wanted to get to. But it's the same thing over and over and over again every year. He's he's always shown raw power. His draft year out of college, I was hearing like 70-grade raw power in batting practice. He's always tinkered with his swing. Maybe the most encouraging thing for me about Garrett Mitchell now is his sprint, his swing this spring training 
looks similar to the swing that he showed last year. And that makes me think that he's not tinkering with the swing anymore. And maybe he's found something. But the fact that this is this has so consistently been what's held him back makes me just wonder if, if it's something that he's able to change. Well, I think the the swing is part of the issue, right? Like the way his swing works is almost like an old school way you would teach a hitter who is an 80 runner to hit, which is to hit the ball on the ground, uh, aim for low line drives, try to take advantage of your speed. But he's not built like Billy Hamilton. Like this is a guy who should be able to drive the ball with some impact in the air for extra base damage. And his swing is more of that downhill type swing. It's a lot of it's a lot of balls on the ground. You're not going to see, um, or at least we haven't seen so far because of the way the swing works. We we haven't seen that extra base power translate in games mm-hmm. that he shows in in batting practice at times, uh, just because of the way his his swing and his approach works. So, yeah, I mean it's it's tough. It's a tough thing to change. Your swing is very ingrained in you i mean you can tweak some things mm-hmm. you know we, we see hitters like joey weimer is a good example tweak or eric brown jr too with the brewers tweaking your setup and you know that can make a meaningful difference but uh you know making pretty wholesale changes to your swing especially for a player who hasn't like hit a wall yet. like it's not like garrett mitchell struggled at ucla mm-hmm. or no, you know always, was he's always generally performed yeah, like it hasn't been like a crazy level of performance in in the minor leagues, but it's nothing where it's like, oh, all right, I've I've obviously got to like rebuild something from the ground up here. Yeah. Um, so he's somebody where it's like, man, you you want a player like that for everything to click because he's just a you know a potential mm-hmm. power speed threat with good defense at a premium position, but mm-hmm. that's also a pretty big risk factor for a player who's already you know has time in the big leagues yeah and and what's really i don't know if it's interesting or frustrating with him but in 23 games or 28 games in the big leagues last year he hit really well he had a 136 wrc plus uh, a couple homers and if you look at the way his batted ball profile looked compared to his minor league history he had a 39 percent ground ball rate which was far and away the best that he's ever had in the minors going backwards from 2022 to 2021 through all the levels he posted a 57 percent ground ball rate a 60 percent ground ball rate 57 percent 60 63 percent so if if he can just get the ball off the ground more often i feel like he has the skills and the tools to be a much more impactful hitter i just have no idea if he's able to do that over a long period of time yeah launch angles last year in the minor leagues are not good um, and we've just They're negative. Seen, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so I don't know. You, you've you've talked about a lot how you think it's hard for for hitters to make these overhauls to their swings, and I feel like Mitchell is is probably becoming maybe the banner player to use an, as an example of that because he has so consistently had this one critique, and we just haven't seen him show an ability to to change it. Um, if you're if you're looking for reasons to believe in it, you could also say that he's a mega athlete, and I think that the general belief among scouts is that 
the better athletes have a better chance of making those adjustments. But again, like you said, and even in that, that small sample in the big leagues last year, a was a small sample, but even then he yeah. struck out like 40% of the time. Yeah. And I was about to say, <laughs> so, I was also looking at expected uh, numbers versus actual numbers. And he was one of the players whose expected numbers were quite a bit lower than his actual numbers, just in terms of quality of contact he might always be that guy who's just overperforming the underlying metrics because he's an 80 grade runner and he's a left-handed hitter and he'll probably be able to consistently post high BABIPs, but he is legitimately one of the fastest players in baseball. The other thing that adds to his risk is just the injuries. I mean, he's, he's been a guy who's injury prone. He's never really been fully healthy for a full season. There's always these, these kind of nagging limiting injuries and, I mean, if if you also are trying to change how you're swinging, not being on the field to try and make that stick against live pitching has to be even even trickier. Outside of just you're not on the field, so you're not you're not performing. So he's he's such a tough one, man. He if you just look at the tools and you see him play, it, he could be one of the best players in baseball, I think, because he does have bat to ball skills. He is a great defender in the outfield. He's got a great arm. We've talked about his speed it's just I don't know well good thing they have uh, also Jackson Cherio and Sal Freelick and Joey Weimer so Brewers have a few different options they do you want to get into some players you want to talk more uh, farm system we haven't gotten to the back third of our farm system rankings I guess there there could be some interesting teams there Um, yeah was there anybody let's see like in this 21 I know you said you like the Marlins at 20 but yeah. I don't know if you're looking at the 21 to 30 range. I don't know if there's anybody that jumps out to you who's maybe underrated or you like more than more than where they are. I know you're not going to say the Braves at 30, so we can. <laughs> no, I think rule they're them clear. Out. I think they're a clear bottom. If there's a tier one at the top, that's that's the Orioles. Whatever this tier is here, I think the Braves are in alone. Um, I do like, and maybe this is cheating because they're kind of just at the top of this group here, but I think the Twins have a really exciting top three players, and I even like Connor Prelip quite a bit as well. But Brooks Lee, Emmanuel Rodriguez, uh, Royce Lewis, and, and oh, Edward Julian was going to be a player that we talked about later who, who I'm pretty high on. So their top four or five players, I'm very high on. And I think they have some interesting players beyond that as well that are close to the big leagues, if not for for some injuries. Just looking at their list now, yeah, this would be a this would be a, a team that I'd say I'm intrigued with. Um, I'm very high on Emmanuel Rodriguez as we've talked about before. I think Edward Julian is just going to hit. I don't I don't necessarily. I'm not going to get too concerned about where he's playing because I think at the end of the day, I'm betting on the bat and the approach and the walks. Uh, and and out, <laughs> unlike Garrett Mitchell, it seems like Julian is a guy who has a very efficient attack angle and has um, just great contact ability, uh, drives the ball with impact. There are some questions about left on left that I think maybe are concerning, but really the top four guys in this org, I'm pretty high on. Maybe Julian Rodriguez Lee even more than Royce Lewis, but I think with Royce Lewis, there's some built-in prospect fatigue that you kind of have to get yourself over and acknowledge that that he's gone through some 
some difficulties and some injuries that have just been unfortunate to see, but he's shown it in flashes too. So, yeah, I like Royce Lewis, but man, like, you know, there are some guys like that where you're just like, please graduate. So we just don't yeah, have to he's, he's worry about ranking these like like gary sanchez was that way for such a long time you know for me has the record for being in a handbook the longest because it is it takes yeah. a special combination of being good enough to rank but also not graduating for such a long time yeah i feel like we've had this conversation not on the podcast before but i a- think Dellen patances was one of them okay i'm gonna pull up his ba card right now it's full because he just couldn't he was he was a high profile player coming out of high school couldn't stay healthy, uh, couldn't throw strikes, <laughs> and mm-hmm. came back as a reliever, and he was better that way, and oh my took him a while. Okay. So, Batances ranked number four in the Yankees' system in 2007, then he ranked 13, then 5, then 28, then 3, then 3, then 19, then ranking number 26 in 2014 when it was his final appearance in the Prospect Handbook. Yeah, I mean, and Lewis hasn't even been in that many prospect handbooks, but it's just been, just been all the injuries, Lewis obviously, be, with him. That, this will be six for him, right? Twenty seventeen draft. Yeah, we've had guys who've been in for like nine or ten. I think Yorman Rodriguez was in there with the Reds for too many years, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's there's certain guys where you're just like, ooh, dude, just <laughs> please. <laughs> Please get to the big leagues. I'm rooting for you to, to get as much playing time as possible so we can... Well, this explains uh, why you don't want to rank Cody Singo. Once once a player is old enough or has been around long enough, Ben wants nothing to do with them. Well, this would be... This is his first and I hope last prospect handbook for... <laughs> if, he, uh, if, he, if this is not his last and something went horribly wrong. Yeah. But the, the two organizations for me that I'm intrigued by in the back in this 21 to 30 range are one is the Padres because I mean, obviously they've, they've just traded away so many prospects, but they still have one of the best shortstop prospects in baseball in Jackson, Merrill, Dylan Lesko. Again, talked about Dylan in a while. A few podcasts got bringing his name up. Got a drink now. Uh, Super high upside, albeit high risk prep pitching prospect from last year's draft. I yeah, really like Padres love really like Sammy Zavala outfielder. They signed out of Venezuela. You're adding now Ethan Salas, their international signing from January 15th this year. Big league camp, right? Yeah. I mean, he was, he played in winter ball games in Venezuela this past off season as a, I mean, he's, he's 16 years old catching. I mean, even just to be catching bullpens there is, pretty valuable experience but he's actually playing in games for him too um but he's got a lot of upside now the depth of the system uh you know (laughs) i think that thins out pretty quick when you've traded like 20 prospects over the course of two years right yeah but i also have confidence that the you know they're gonna lose some draft positioning based on all the money they're spending mm-hmm. now and where I am presuming they're going to pick <laughs> based in, you know, the next few years drafts. But you know, I also have confidence that they're going to help replenish some of that depth in, in the coming years. But for, you know, for a number, what do we have 23 farm system? There's definitely still some pretty high upside players there. 
And then I think the Mariners are pretty intriguing too. Again, I don't think they're underrated, but a lot of their talent at the lower levels is pretty intriguing to me. Uh, I really like Cole Young, the shortstop. Their first round pick last year, guys like Gabriel Gonzalez and, you know, the outfielder uh, and rookie ball, Michael Arroyo, shortstop. Uh, we talked about on a previous podcast episode, uh, Walter Ford, uh, pitcher who I, I really like to uh, Bryce Miller. So they, they have some guys who I think are pretty good breakout candidate types. Now, again, they are in the lower levels mostly and the depth in the system I'm not crazy about, but there's still some mm-hmm. some pretty high upside players who have some breakout potential there for, for a team that's in the back third of our rankings. Yeah, those are those are good names too. I think uh you've got me on board with Seattle as well. Um Yeah, none of the other ones jump out as, as being a, a too fascinating do you think there are any teams that you look at in this range and you're like man you really should not be in this range right now like teams like kansas city and detroit i think you'd want to see them quite a bit higher than this yeah i think that's uh, probably why they're making changes in detroit uh probably the white Sox too i mean should be it should be higher than 28 i mean the angels just seem like perpetually stuck in mediocrity in everything Mm -hmm. that they do and it's a shame given the the two mega mega stars they have on their big league team and they just can't win there and their farm system is below average um i like how the white Sox started taking high school players in the first round though I mean, they, for the longest time, they were so college-heavy. From 2014 to 2020, they took college players. Then 2021, they took Colson Montgomery, who I really like. And then in 2022, I think maybe one of your personal favorites, Noah Schultz, left-handed pitcher out of uh, high school in Illinois. I think I, I like those two, and I'm curious to see how they're going to approach the draft uh, this coming year as well if they, they stick to those high upside preps. Yeah. Sucker for that profile, Ben. All right. What uh, you mentioned, uh, Heston Kerstad earlier in the episode too. Mm-hmm. He, um, you know, it's like I don't know. How, I don't know how much you care about spring training as far as evaluating players or updating your opinion on prospects based on what you see in the spring, especially early. In the spring, like for me, there there would have to be some true tangible change that I would have to see in a player, like something measurable or something in a player's swing that's really different than what we saw before for me to have to put too much weight on what we're seeing, especially early on in spring training when you know, guys are facing a pitcher wearing number 89, throwing mostly fastballs or just trying to like work on a certain pitch in games. Yeah. I think that I, I tend to agree with you that it's hard to make too many takeaways, but I do think that 
there are things that you can learn about players in spring training. There's just also so much noise in spring training that it's hard to separate what, what is signal and what is noise. Um, so you could certainly trick yourself if you're trying to, like if you're looking to find a bunch of takeaways from some players, you're certainly going to trick yourself a bunch. But I do think the piece that that Josh and Kyle have done for us in the past where we basically ask scouts who who is like impressing scouts in spring training, that piece has put us on quite a few players who took big steps forward over the past year. So I think there's something to it. I don't know that I am the person who would be qualified to take out the, the real changes from a lot of the noise that you might see. And I also just, it's very hard for me to spend time watching spring training every year this time because the college season's rolling around because I'm watching high school players. So I'm mostly hearing about it like secondhand or looking at the, uh, the bappers on the site or hearing what you guys are saying is going on. Most of the, the time I'm watching baseball, it's not spring training. I've never been to spring training. Um, but I do think that, that anytime you see a player on the field, especially when we're talking about young players, there are things that they could be working on or changing, whether that's physically, whether that's an approach, whether that's mechanically, uh, whether that's a pitch mix for a pitcher. I think things like velocity stabilize pretty quickly. There are new metrics now that we have for pitchers specifically that it, it seems like you can maybe learn a little bit about what players have done in the offseason quicker. Uh, but in terms of performance results, things get noisy really quickly. Um, so I would just I would just basically ask the scouts and, and say, ask them who they like. Yeah, I mean, I think if, a, if we're seeing a pitcher, let's say, touch 98 in spring training, and you're like, oh, well, we've never seen him higher than 96 before. Yeah, there's some tangible change there probably happening that we can actually – measure but like you said i think the noise for the most part is going to drown out the very minimal signal that's in there i mean i think back to when remember when shohei otani came over Mm -hmm. for his first spring training and people were like freaking out and panicking about how this was overrated and he can't (laughs) he can't hit and he's gonna get shelled and yeah all I this think stuff. that also goes back to like the, the expectations. Like Otani probably had larger expectations of anyone in spring training. Like there's probably not been a single player who has taken part in spring training since Otani's spring training who has had higher expectations, right? So it's always tricky to balance that for for players who are just massively hyped. Uh, but yeah, you, <laughs> if you see a guy looking a bit rusty early on, it might just because he's he's got to shake off the rust. Well, guys, just that's why they have spring training. Like they're just getting ramped up and acclimated for the season. They're not typically ready to go full strength, 100% game ready on March 3rd. (laughs) I mean, I I think back to Pete Alonso got hammered pretty hard at one point from, you know, scouts in spring training, and uh, then he went on to hit. 50 something home runs <laughs> that season so yeah. i think it's a it's a very dangerous time to be making evaluations at uh at this time of year with that said if you were going to spring <laughs> training what would you what would you be looking for if if i were going myself you mean yeah if you were going and you were just for us going down there to you know write about prospects cover some teams what 
what are I guess outside of just seeing the players, is there anything specific that you think is useful, or are you just kind of taking everything in and uh, putting eyes on players, seeing how bodies have changed, and talking with evaluators? I would be spending all of my time at the backfields once teams start playing minor league spring training games and focusing on the players who are going to be playing probably in in the low A teams especially because those are the younger players where you're probably going to see more physical changes mm-hmm. and more tangible differences with you know the player who's 18 19 years old uh, especially um, yeah, especially those younger players where you're going to see more differences compared to the the older players where they're kind of just getting ramped up and ready to go for the season. And, and for a lot of those players, it might be guys you just haven't seen in person or, or at all before because they, you know, previously were, uh, you know, just in the Dominican Summer League last year or just got a little bit of time at the the complex leagues. So it's not because you don't like hanging out with people. You think there's just actual value. Actually, think about the backfields. I feel like more and more people talk about the backfields. Do you feel like they've gotten more crowded in recent years? Well, it's, I mean, it's the best value. I mean, especially if you care about prospects, like you're going to see, like usually teams will do it. So if, if it's a game day, you'll have two teams at home and then your other two teams, like your low A and high A teams will be at home and your double A and triple A teams will be on the road so you can go and watch two games at once and you're going to see a whole bunch of players and prospects from the team you're a fan of so it's it's great value and it's free i think for almost every team maybe some teams are starting to charge for it i don't know but um it's and you you know you can get right up on the field well not on the field but right right up to the to the and chain link fence fields there that don't have fences down the side so you could yeah, I mean it's it's you can't beat the the value for mm-hmm. for that. Any uh specific players that that have maybe intrigued you uh from spring training so far this year? We we talked about a few already. Garrett Mitchell, Heston Kerstad, Edward Julian I mentioned I like. Um seems like Ronnie Mauricio has been putting up some numbers, hitting some balls very far as he does. Um but are there any specific players you want to get into or do you want to get into some questions? Yeah, I like, man, I, I really want to like Ronnie Mauricio. I am still skeptical because of the approach, but I mean, I remember watching him in the Dominican Republic before he signs when he was 15 years old and he was probably 6'3", 150-something pounds maybe uh, with you know a waist up to his chest. Uh, looked like he could, you know, tie his shoes without bending over because his arms were so long, just super high upside, uh, but could also play shortstop. Like a lot of people liked him. I think we ranked him number three on our international rankings that year for July 2nd, if I remember right. Uh, and it was like a split camp among scouts, but it was a split camp among scouts for the reasons why they liked him it was like oh no some guys liked him because he was really smooth at shortstop and had good actions and you thought he was gonna play shortstop and and hit Uh, and other guys were like no look how much room he has to fill out like he's gonna be this big physical third baseman who hits for power 
one day. So um, I hope things are, are starting to click for him. Again, it was a, a, good, a great winter ball season for him, obviously. Good, good results early in spring training, which I don't really think means all that much. But a lot of the tendencies to expand the strike zone and, and the swing and miss there is still pretty concerning for me. Yeah, the the chase rates overall with him would be what probably puts me off this one. If if I had to buy or sell on on Mauricio, I'd probably be selling just because of that. But he does have some exciting tools. Uh, where do you think he winds up defensively at this point? Uh, that's a good Why question. On on team need. Yeah, I mean it. It could be. I think. I think. I think he could play shortstop. He could play third base. Uh, probably will, yeah, be dependent on, you know, the makeup of whatever, you know, whether it's the Mets or some other team um, that he's on. What about, uh, you mentioned uh, Heston Kerstad, who, mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about all the high draft picks the Orioles have had in recent years, and he's one that hasn't worked out the way they were hoping for, but obviously him having myocarditis was not something yeah. <laughs> uh, that they were looking at when he got it back in 2020. It just seems like it's derailed him or early set him back mm-hmm. since then, you know, good early res- spring training results so far. Are you, are you buying in on him right yeah, now? He, he would be one that I would buy on. I think there are a number of reasons to like him. The track record of hitting in college was was excellent for power. I mean, the fact that the Orioles have done so well with their hitters, both in identification and development, makes me just a little higher than if if he was in some other organization. I think uh, he hit well last year in low A. Uh, you can be skeptical of that because he was 23 years old at the time. I think that's a, a perfectly good critique. But he also played well in the Arizona Fall League. He's just hit very well in a number of different environments, and I think it's tough to hold the age against him because he just dealt with some things that that were out of his control. It's not like he debuted and failed and was held back, and so I think I will be willing to give the Orioles and Heston the benefit of the doubt, especially because back in 2020, I think I had said that like passing on Austin Martin at two and the Blue Jays drafting him at five was like, the best pick of the draft and look how that one has looked panned out for me. So I think Baltimore was probably onto something with him at the time. The, the way people talk about his, his BPs just as all fields approach too. it looks like he's going to be able to do damage to all fields. I think they might have another really good hitter here. And I'm, I'm curious to see where they push him and whether or not his, uh, his offense kind of maintains at upper levels because he did have a, a sample in high A where he struggled. That's kind of the one area of his resume and his his career that I can see where he hasn't hit. Other than that, it's a lot of it's a lot of average. It's good OBPs. It's good power, um, and I mostly don't really care where he plays defense um, with the potential impact profile he's got. Yeah, I'm probably still in the sell camp on this one, but with the obvious caveat that like, hey, there's a lot of unknown and or at least a lot of slack i think you gotta cut him given the history here but he's gonna have to 
He's going to have to hit a lot. I don't think he's going to bring you a whole bunch of defensive value. Yeah. And there just continue to be more question marks, at least, on the on the bat than there were or than we would have thought a few years ago. Now, maybe he completely turns things around this year, just being further removed from the, the myocarditis. Uh, and then, obviously, last year he had the, the hamstring issue, too, that uh, delayed his start to the the season. But just would have liked to would like to have seen more when he was on the field mm-hmm. last year. All right. How about uh, Oscar Colas is one that I feel like we might have differing opinions on. You in or out on him? Uh, I mean, he's he's a good prospect, but I am not quite as sold on the approach yeah. with him. I think he has big power, and I'm not sure that the approach is going to work. Mm-hmm. against major league pitching, at least not to the extent where you could say, all right, this is going to be, you know, a league average or better everyday regular. I think that approach is going to get him into trouble against major league pitching. Yeah, I think coming into this podcast, I felt higher on Oscar Colas, but the fact that his chase rate is is close to what Ronnie Mauricio is chasing at, um, it's just not as good of a, a pure hitter as I was expecting. Maybe the performance numbers tricked me a little bit. I still think he could be a, a pretty useful hitter. I'm, I'm just curious now as to what that's going to settle into, what the pure hitting ability is going to be. I like the power. Again, it's a, it's a corner profile. I think I don't really care too much about the defense with him. Um, but I guess if... Maybe I should start to care a little bit more about the defense if I have questions about how much he's really going to hit. I'm a little higher on you than than Colas, I think, but if I had to do buy or sell now, it would be it would be tough for me to pick which one I would be. I think I'll I'll, I'll stay optimistic on on a Cuban outfielder and, and say bye for now. All right. Some of the other guy, I mean, talked about Sal Frelick a lot on this podcast. He's off yeah. to a I think a good start. Yeah, very in Jackson Merrill. Very in. You know what's exciting about Merrill is the way that people talk about how he adjusts to secondaries and how he takes at bats against good left-handed hitters or left-handed pitchers. Excuse me. It feels like he he's able to get to different pitch types and pitch locations easily. The bat speed is good. I like the swing. He's got power. He does a lot of things really well in terms of hitting. That that I'm really excited about the bat. Um, obviously he's a guy who's, who's risen up quite a bit for just that reason. That's not breaking any news here, but the more I learn about Merrill, uh, and hear about his hitting ability, the more excited I get about him. Yeah. It's just a very compact, adjustable swing. He's very hitter-ish mm-hmm. as we like to say. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's six foot three, Ben. I'm sorry. All right. Hey, there's nothing. That's like, that's a kind of that window of like, you know, five eleven to six two, six three is like an ideal size. I feel like for for a hitter, where you know your strike zone and your 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 arms usually aren't too big and too long to get you into trouble, but you also have some more you know some more physicality than the you know the little five six <laughs> five seven guy. Yeah, um, um, Corbin Carroll has looked pretty electric. I think we're both probably pretty all in on him at this point. I have no concerns about Corbin Carroll in the Absolutely. least. 
Two players who are interesting are Tristan Cassis and Brett Beatty. I think there are a lot of similarities with these two players. I'm curious who you like more um, and if you're in on them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in on I'm in on both. Yeah, I really yeah. like Tristan Cassis. And I think there's, I mean, another guy like we were talking about with Zach Veen earlier where I think there is, I mean, he's not the athlete that Zach Veen is, but just somewhere where there's big power in there and i think there's probably bigger game power to come with him just as he continues to evolve as a hitter i mean you see some tape measure type home runs with him and he doesn't have to sell out to produce that power either so you see you know a pretty reasonable strikeout rate you see him drawing walks and i think there's even bigger power to come with him so yeah i'm i'm very very much buying tristan cassis yeah and i think uh, everything you said about tristan cassis i agree with it's crazy to me how similar cassis and Beatty are they're both entering um i believe they're age 23 seasons here both have a little bit of time at the big leagues corner profiles left-handed hitters who are probably going to be power oriented over pure hit um they both have similar exit velocities similar 90th percentile exit velocities similar contact rates uh, I'm glad that we got them closer together on the top 100. I think we have them both right around 30 overall. I think that's a, a good spot for them. And the fact that Beatty might even be able to play third base makes me almost like him a tick more. I feel like he doesn't get as much uh, attention as Brett Beatty does, or as Tristan Cassis does, I should say. But I view them as very similar offensive profiles right now. Um, yeah, and I would be in on both. Mm-hmm. About... Uh... Brooks Lee is another guy with the Twins mm-hmm. off to a pretty hot start so far early in spring training this year. Again, not getting too worked up about him right now. Uh, that is a where has he been playing in spring training? I don't know. I ha- I haven't seen him play in spring training, so I couldn't speak to that. But he does seem he's somebody where I'm not surprised that like he could get off to a good start in spring training. He just seems like a very polished yeah. hitter who's I mean, just with a very advanced approach too. I think we, if, if we didn't know that before the draft, which you should have known that, um, the, the way they pushed him in his pro debut should have been telling and how confident they were in his ability. Um, spent four games in rookie ball, pushed a high A for 25 games, then uh, made a double A appearance for a couple games and hit really at all levels. I just think it's, it's what we knew about Lee pre-draft. He's a very polished, um, very good pure hitter. I'm curious to see like what he's going to settle into defensively. Uh, if he's going to improve on, on the pre-draft profile there, what the power is going to be like, because he's always a guy who just had a ton of doubles. Does that turn into more over the fence um, run power? Um, yeah, I'm in on him. I, I think you have to feel pretty good about a bat like that. So it's good to know that he's, he's doing well. Um, certainly not. I haven't come off him and I'm, and I'm not going to now. Right. On the uh, arm side at, at spring training, I mean, Kyle Muller has looked pretty pretty solid so far. Are you – I mean, is he a starter, do you think? Is he a reliever? In where, Oakland, he's a starter. Yeah, that's – he'll get the opportunity. Yeah, that's why I like this move for Kyle Muller specifically. I think maybe you could make the case that, that being with the Braves would be better for him because of their – pitching development track record but i i think honestly muller just needed opportunity and big league opportunity it's not obvious that was going to come in the starting rotation for the braves it's a crowded room there i 
I think there are seven or eight players who are kind of in the running for the fifth starter or, or to fill out the rotation, I should say, um, depending on some injuries and some performance. But Kyle Muller should have uh, a much cleaner path to a starting role with the A's. I think there's a chance he takes a step forward with the control. The stuff has always been good. Uh, the fastball's always played a little bit down from the pure velocity. Uh, but it's still an upper 90s fastball from the left side. The breaking stuff looks good. I've read a lot of good things about just his uh, control so far this spring, and and who knows, uh, again, if that'll stick. But I think he really does just have to put the stuff over the plate a little bit more often, and, and the pure stuff will be good enough to for him to find some success. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he turned into a solid back-of-the-rotation starter and I think he's going to have the chance to do that this year. So I would be I would be buying on Kyle Muller at this point as well. All right. Yeah, he and I think Hayden Wesneski with the Cubs, mm-hmm. both been pretty solid so far early on in the spring. I think Wesneski, good fastball, especially good slider. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be his, his bread and butter pitch for him. Uh, throws strikes, saw him have some success in in the big leagues last year i don't think he's a you know front of the rotation type arm but i I think he's somebody who could settle in as a a pretty solid back end starter for them yeah nice um let's get into some questions ben all right uh let's see i'll go to a longer one that we have from trevor powers uh which i thought was really good when he says hey carlos you trevor power (laughs) trevor powers oh okay (laughs) Hey, Carlos, you and Ben were talking about the 2020 draft, and it made me think of a question for the podcast. When scouting command control of draft pitchers, would organizations go deeper than just strikeouts and walks or strike percentage? Obviously, the visual of repeating mechanics, uh, but is there a process to take away the result of a pitch and find out pitches actually thrown in the strike zone? Uh, Then he talked about comparing Reed Detmers and Asa Lacey and talked about how he thought Lacey was reliever-prone because so many pitches he threw were out of the zone and got chases. Um, but basically it comes back to when evaluating amateur pitchers, do you consider where the swings and misses come from rather than just straight strike percentage, walk percentage, or strikeout to walk ratio? Any thoughts on that one, Ben, or do you want me to tackle it first? So the question is, basically, what do we... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I guess I could have <clears throat> summarized it uh, more efficiently. Basically, when scouting command and control of pitchers, do teams go deeper than just looking at the strikeouts and walks and overall strike percentage? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you can, you definitely do that when you're just doing it through traditional scouting and you're, you're watching a pitcher uh, live or or watching just on video, but you also, especially for the college players, uh, more so than the high school players, you have, they, they all have track man data, that you can pull up and, and actually like see a, a pitch plot of mm-hmm. where the pitches are going. So um, you can get a, a better sense through that way. I mean, unless you think the some teams are juicing their <laughs> the the data or something like that. But yeah, um, I don't know but, how you would juice location data though. That'd be a little <laughs> tricky to juice. It's. Uh, I mean, back in 2017 on the high school side, when Justin Perline, who's who's an analyst with the Pirates right now, was interning with us. He even took TrackMan data that we had from, I think it was the Tournament of Stars. Um, he took TrackMan data from Tournament of Stars, and we found we basically got a pitch plot with a simulated strike zone, 
and tried to look at which catchers were the best framers. And this was six years ago now that we were doing it for high school. So that there is more data for high school players, depending on the events they go to. Uh, for all the college players, like you said, there's TrackMan data. You can just look at pitch plots in tools like Synergy now and see where in general pitchers are throwing. I know there are scouts who, when you're really bearing down on pitchers, scouts can, I mean, you can plot the pitches uh, yourself at a game and you can have more uh, feel for the command at a game, like looking at where a catcher's setting up, where a pitcher's trying to hit the spot, and, and by how much did he miss the spot. I've talked to some scouts who have pretty detailed ways of, of kind of charting that for themselves in person at games. How generous cool. was the umpire strike zone? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So Especially think, in high school. Yeah. Yeah. So all these things I think are teams are using them. I think there are just a lot of tools now, a lot of data. And to your point, I think scouts have been scouting for command without all these tools for a long time now too. So it's nothing new for them, I would say. Yeah. At, at the same time, I think measurements or numbers like strike percentage or just walk rate are going to correlate pretty strongly with, um, with command too. Mm -hmm. I know there's, it's not the exact same thing, but directionally you're, you're going to get there pretty close. I mean, the guy who's walking five per nine in the sec, like (laughs) he's not, he doesn't have plus command. (laughs) I can tell you that it's, you know, there's going to be strike throwing issues there now the guy who's filling the strike zone doesn't necessarily have plus command but there's you know especially if we're talking about the college level the the high school level is different because umpires have big strike zones and the quality of the hitters you're facing is you know relative to pro ball is, is not anywhere near the same so that's not as significant unless there is you know if if you have a high school pitcher who's walking you know seven batters per nine yeah that should be a red flag for you but Mm -hmm. i get generally if we're talking you know high level division one college baseball um even something just like strike percentage or or walk rate is going to correlate pretty highly with command i think cool um Jeff Javino on Instagram asks, what are your thoughts on if Yankees shortstop Anthony Volpe should be on the big league club to start the season? I would not put him there. No. I mean, I I would give him some more time. He's going to be 22 years old this year. He has very little time in AAA and he was okay. Two games. Sorry. Sorry, man. He played 22 games in AAA last year. Yeah, he was okay there, but wasn't great. I would rather just give him, give him more time in the minor leagues. And if he's, you know, if it's May and he's dominating, and you have the opportunity for him there, then bring him up. But I would not want to uh, rush him up to the big leagues before I think he's ready to stay there for good. I agree. I am curious if we previously always had critiques about teams who held players down too long when they were ready just to add another year of control. I'm curious if the draft pick compensation rule that they added will have the inverse effect and if teams will maybe push players quicker than we think because I would say almost always teams aired on on the opposite side previously, but I wonder if if that's enough of an incentive for 
uh, some players to get pushed uh, aggressively, like we would we would think is aggressively. Yeah, I mean, in his case, I, I I don't think it would be service time manipulation to start him in the minor leagues. Yeah, and I, I also think that even with the new rules regarding draft picks, like Anthony Volpe would not be in my top ten rookie of the year picks, even if I knew he was going to start the year on the opening day roster. So uh, he's he's definitely somebody I would keep in AAA just to mm-hmm. start the season. All right, we've got another one from uh, soon-to-be Rabbi Leifkowitz on Instagram. Do you believe Nationals right-handed pitcher Harleen Susana will end up a starter? If so, early or late career, Charlie Morton. That's an interesting name to throw out there. Ben, what do yeah. you think? Don't, I don't see that comp with him, but I do think he can start. Uh, or I do think he has... The stuff and the delivery and enough strike-throwing ability to start. I would certainly continue to develop him as a starter. He throws, I mean, he has electric velocity. He's consistently upper 90s, uh, touching triple digits. What I think is like 102 maybe was his peak, but um, he does it without much effort either. Like He's not a max effort guy where I think, okay, he's, you know, he can air it out for an inning in the bullpen, and that's it. Um, no, I, I think he, I think he has a chance to start. But you know, with any pitcher who you know has one season experience and forty-five innings and is still a teenager, uh, there's still a lot of durability questions that he's going to have to uh, answer. Not that I think there's any excess risk with him beyond just mm-hmm. being a teenager who throws. Uh, 102 yeah, miles an hour. Um, but I do think he, he has a, a chance to start. It's not like he's just some hard-throwing dude who's going to definitely end up in the bullpen. Yeah. I actually wish he didn't throw that hard. Um, it just seems like there's a lot of evidence that suggests if you're throwing that hard at a young age, you're, you're putting so much force on your arm that's still developing. I don't, I don't love it, but he has been quite good. So... I'll probably just stick with you on that one, Ben. I don't have too much to add. Uh, and I think that's all we had for questions today. But if you do have questions in the future and you want us to answer them, send them to futureprojection at baseballamerica.com. That's the email you can find. It's linked in the show notes below. If you want to uh, just click it on your phone and, and fire a question away, we will read all of them. can't promise we'll answer all of them, but we'll certainly read all of them. Um, and I'd say we answer probably 90-plus percent of the questions we get, Ben. Does that seem fair? We'll have to do some such as our track and the metrics on those. Yeah, let's do it. Um, that's it for today, everyone. Um, for me, I'll just say we've got more draft content coming every week. It's been fun to uh, do some work with Peter Flaherty, who's who's doing college and draft stuff for us. We've got a college hot sheet every week. We've got a draft stock watch every week. We've got maybe a, maybe a mock draft coming up soon. Ben, Ooh. I know people people like that. It's March, so calm down, calm down. It's not. It's not any real mock draft, but it's a it's a useful exercise to do throughout the year to just kind of see where players are falling on the board, what range they're in. So that's what's coming for me. How about for you, Ben? What are you working on? What's what's coming up for you? Yeah, we got the top 30s for every team on the site now, so 900 scattering reports, and then we we you know obviously we like to go not just top 30, but we have a group of about nine, 10, 15 or so players for each team that uh, didn't make the top 30, but is still. Uh, an intriguing name, whether it's a a Rule 5 pick or a, a lower-level 
guy who isn't, uh, you know, hasn't reached the upper levels yet, but is still an intriguing player to watch or uh, maybe an upper level guy who doesn't have a, a super high ceiling, but could still be a, a contributor to the big league team in a, a utility or a, a bullpen or some type of bench role. So um, we'll have all all of those reports on online uh, probably by uh, by early next week. You've probably seen a whole bunch of them start to roll out already. Mm-hmm. Well, awesome. Thank you guys for listening. That's all we have for today. Appreciate you sticking with us for the long haul. Thanks for supporting Baseball America if you do. If you don't, maybe consider uh, subscribing because everything you get in this podcast, you just get more of that on the website, in the magazine, uh, behind the paywall. So for Ben, I'm Carlos. We'll see you next time, everybody.